You have a podcast voice. Do you know that? Do I have a podcast voice? You change it to very NPR. I do. I'm like, so hello. Also, when you're with your southern friends, your southern accent gets more intense. How dare you? <laughs> when, have, when have I had southern friends? <laughs> I'm not from the South. I'm not from the South <laughs> Welcome to the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Cockrell. Today's Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. This is Season 1, Episode 5, titled... Jello molds and decoupage. In this episode, I sit down with my friend Joyce Lai, who is, in no particular order, a dancer, designer, and an artist, among countless other things. This episode's a little different because we actually tried to record it on location at a tapas bar in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. So you may hear some clattering dishes or laughter from the table next door. But before you freak out, we were, of course, socially distanced outside. I should probably give you one last disclaimer. Joyce is my most artistic friend that I know. She has forgotten more about classical ballet and architects and mid-century design and film directors than I will ever know. So, when we have a couple of drinks and we start talking, the conversation goes all over the place. Rather than add in a lot of editorial comments to sort of bridge the gap of what we're talking about, which is not really possible because half the time I'm missing the references that she's throwing out, I'm just going to let you experience what it's like to sit at the table with somebody like Joyce who is so artistic that even her coffee cup is art-directed. So pull up a chair, help yourself to the olives on the table, and get ready for episode five of the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. So like as a painter, I actually work for a photorealist painter as a color mixer, and I remember my friends who didn't know how painting worked being very like excited by that they were like it's so cool it looks like a photograph but like once you know how it's done it's actually like not that exciting because you you can see behind it right so like to me like painterliness when I look at a painting like it's much more exciting when there are like passages that have like this sort of high virtuosity but like when everything is like all over high virtuosic like maybe I'm not that interested like I'm talking about contemporary painting like or maybe even just like as an emotional response, like where there, for me, I'll always be like, that brushstroke is so amazing. Like I, 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 there are certain paintings, like I remember seeing an Alex Katz and it just had like this perfect like brushstroke that was like a turquoise color delineating a shadow. And I was like, that like one brushstroke is like so genius because it's like, it's so vivid and beautiful in and of itself. And like that little passage just like really did something for me. I just love when things are sort of like blurry and gauzy in the background and like with the, with the like a very foreground focus like on what you're supposed to look at because I'm like it controls it's a way of controlling the frame and everything that you try to do I think is like if you're 
if you're doing photography or cinematography or even art direction or even as I was talking about in class today in theater design you're always trying to control the frame and what people are looking at and what people aren't looking at that sounds exhausting like for me that's just <laughs> but think about like theater design where it's like there's all this masking yeah yeah you're like controlling the frame very exactly and like or cinematography where I mean, like, for me, and, like, I like working with cinematographers where I'm, like, what exactly is the coverage? Like, I will design for the frame very exactly and so that, like, things push in or, like, so you know what to focus on. Like, these are all design things where, I mean, like, an all-over focus and all-over coverage is a thing, but if you're, like, I'm exactly framing Cody like that, I'd be, like, well, I'll take that element out, I'll take that element out, I'll put this element in, I'll put this element in to everything be, like push in on Cody. Do you know what I mean? If that's what the effect you're going for. And that's what like really good design does without people knowing it. It like draws your attention or draws you into a narrative without you realizing that that's what they're doing. Like they're creating a visual pattern for you. They're creating visual focus for you and you won't even notice. It's just like brings you along on the journey, which is why I love design. Once I was keenly aware that I need to, like, climax the music with the dancers. Yes. Right. You, like, go through all these calculations while you're playing. Right? You have to go, okay, wait a minute. So there's, like, they're going in groups of two or three. Oh, but this person, she doesn't like the other people in class, so she's going to go on her, she's going to go by herself. And blah, blah. So you're like, okay. You're so, like, oh, no, I have to add an eight. <laughs> so that's, that's seven, seven half phrases of music. Okay, so I have to do... Yeah. Really, three phrases plus a tag. It's a lot of math. It's a lot of stupid. So arts is math. It's like yes, arts. Arts is math. If you've listened to the uh, episode with oh, Rachel yeah. Baker, balloons are math. Ballet is math. It's all math. So like design I would, is math. Design is math. A lot of math. So you do all this stupid music math. The best thing that I did, like, if I would do, like, I could have danced all night for like the. Grand Allegro, like everybody's just leaping across the floor, right? Like, and da 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 I could have danced, danced, danced all night. It's supposed to be this like great grand finish. And then the teacher goes, okay, one more group. And you're like, and you're like, oh. okay, all right. So, wait, let me... so what do you do? Do you do a repeat or do you switch the music? I do a little, well, it's only one more group. Right, so you have to do a weird repeat. I do a weird repeat. And then it's like, okay, 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 one more group. And then it's just like the, now okay. you're just doing another weird repeat. It's, and then I'm just like, all of a sudden the ballet teacher turns into that drunk girl at karaoke at 2 a.m. Like, no, just one more song, one more. Come on, come on. And then you have to do like three or four tags if I could have danced on it, which is already too long. And I'm like, I can only transpose this song so many times. You're like, let me make it more arpeggiated. I like <laughs> you do like hate every it. variation. And like, if I had known that there were going to be four more you groups, I could have done or something. Done a different song. Yes, yeah. I could have gone back to the bridge. Yeah, but it's like no, just last well, minute. Well, I never Ugh. blame. I never blame the ballet pianist because I'm like, they know what they're doing, actually, usually, and it's like they're just adapting to a situation. And like, I mean, again, that's a very that to me is another like design versus art kind of thing. In design, you're always like, I have to problem solve and thank you. Work for it might not be ideal. It might not be exactly what you want it to be, but you got to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to make it happen. You got to make it happen. You, it's design is about deliverables. <laughs> So remember you 
asked me about like the difference between design and art. Yes. It's that right there in one summary. It's like what your goal is. Because design, you're always like, you're in service to an artistic vision. When you're just being your own like fine artist, you're just like being expressive within itself. I wanted to also talk about the difference between art and craft. And it's interesting that you said art and design because I think that there's similarity now between design and craft. Such that, like you have, if you're gonna if you're gonna design Thank something, you. you have to have a certain eye for. You have to have an eye for detail to execute it. Like whether you're going to design a basket or a pot or a sweater or, or I mean, really anything. But it's not necessarily. I mean, I guess it can be artistic, but it's not necessarily art. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Like design versus craft versus art. It's kind of a weird question. Um, there's like two levels of it. Like one of the things I was talking about was like purpose, right? Um, where like art just exists for art's sake, right? Like we all accept that. Design, we usually accept that there's like a utility or you're designing for something, right? Like or someone else's artistic vision. Like it's it's a support thing, right? It's not the mm. primary thing almost. Um, and then craft to me has like a different connotation of also like craft has this idea of like you're making an object and the end goal is like that object that you've mm. made. Does that make sense? Yes. Like it's the thing itself. Like you made a sweater. You can design a sweater too, but like the craft is like you made a sweater. Well, and and that's the art of it different. is the context where you can make a sweater and use it in a way that makes it art. Like, for example, if you're Marcel Duchamp and you were like, this is a sweater, and you put it in an art museum, and the whole process of designing it and crafting it are the same, but because of the context that you've put it in, it now becomes art. Mm. And people can't see that I'm doing, like, quotes. But, like, and I believe in that, because it, it fulfills a different purpose. You know what I mean? So you think so that, like, the venue... Wrapped in. Well, context is a very big... That's, like, yeah. what the conceptual art of the 60s and 70s and, like, Dada is, like, early modernist art all contended with, where, like, the power of institutions to convey the status of art upon objects. Ooh. Which is why it's such a, like, major thing um, for that, like, it's kind of interesting that you look at indigenous arts and how often those indigenous arts are placed as crafts rather than mm. art and it's just because of like European lens canon like doing that so that's like always something you have to consider like what are the powers that be that are determining something is art versus right. not art um, and again like the, the, the part of the problem is because we place these in very hierarchical categories which I don't tend to think about um, I think they're more descriptive than hierarchical but I certainly went through like an art school sort of Education where there is this idea that like art is over design and design is over craft, like that there is a ranking system for these things. But I don't, I don't know if I agree with that because now I've sort of dabbled in all these things. So you know, like who am I to say? I don't know. As a dabbler, could you talk about some of the things that you've done? Like how in have you dabbled? Life. Just in life, like well, my background is in fine arts. I studied painting. I got a fancy painting degree, and then I worked in the art world. Amongst like the some of the like highest grossing earning contemporary artists 
of our time, I don't want to name names, but I worked at a very blue chip gallery sort of situation. I was like in the art world as a gallerina, as they call it. Um, basically very in the art world, very in the like, you go to an opening every Thursday, you talk to all the curator people, you like this, that, and the other. That was probably like the fanciest I've ever been. You get like VVIP invites to all the museum shows, this, that, and the other. Um, and I kind of hated it. So I burnt out of that really quickly, like really badly. I was, I was miserable, actually. And part of it is because um, I think like working in the art world, I came from an art studio background where I wanted to make the things. But I worked in a context where I was looking at the things and not making the things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, like, I remember when I had a job that really flamed out very badly. Um, she was, this, the gallery director was like, you're just too much of an artist. Like, I'm just only going to hire art history people to do this now because you're, like, an art studio person. And that's just, like, a really different lens. And, like, at the time, I was very much like, what do you mean? But in hindsight, like, I think she was correct where my interests are not in selling art or, like, curating art like I want to be making the art and so like there was a conflict of interest or like what I was good at or what I was interested in where I couldn't give myself completely to that role mm. right yeah where like the people who are really good gallery directors really good curators like they're very into promoting other people's art and like looking at art and I just wanted to make it like I was just frustrated that I wasn't making art yeah <laughs> So, like, to be on the selling side or on the the non-making side of the art world was, like, I just don't think it was the right fit for me. If you're listening to this podcast right now and wondering, how can I help? How can I make this better? How can I guilt Cody into making more episodes? The best way you can do that is through cold, hard cash. You can become a monthly sponsor today. The best news is it's so easy and it's not even that expensive. It's like 99 cents a month or $4.99 or $9.99 if you really love me. There's a link in the description, but you can also go to anchor.fm slash socially distant craft club slash support. Wow, that's a lot. Maybe just click on the link. I also was not a very good fine artist, to be honest. Um, it never sat well with me to be like, I'm an artist. Like, I never could describe myself that way. I would always be like, I'm a maker. I do artistic things once in a while. And I also was not very good at, um, like, just sitting in a studio and being, like, self-generative. You know? Um, which which is why I find it super amazing to like do design now because like this idea of being a designer does sit really comfortably with me and the process of like working collaboratively working with a director who does have like more of uh, overarching artistic vision and me being like how can I make your vision come to life through design like that is a very um, comfortable place and a very like I, I like it like it makes sense to me like it's problem solving it's can you it like is artistic but it's also and it's creative but it's also like 
the, the parameters, there's like more restrictions and parameters and boundaries and like external factors that decide what you make. Because when I was just being an artist, I was like, well, I can make anything. I literally can make anything because I like have a fair amount of technical skill. And I was like, I can make anything, but I don't know what I want to make or I don't want to make anything. And then I got very paralyzed. So you've done a lot of art direction and this kind of thing. Um, but can you go into like specifics of like a day in the life? Like, what does that even really mean? What does that look like? like if you're, if I'm art directing a project, like, like, for just, like, a short like walk us through like some of the projects that you've done. Like, what, what is it? Like, you've gotten paid for this. Like, what yeah. is it that that you've gotten paid for? Like, what is it? What, well, what have you done? Um, I guess okay. So for film, there's always like there's development and there's like pre-production process, um, and then you're in production. So there's like all these different phases, right? Um, and so where a designer gets brought in is usually um, in pre-production where like a, usually a director and a producer have kind of figured out a project that they want to do um, and they start bringing people on and usually I get work through people I've worked with already basically which is why I'm trying to expand the amount of people I work with uh, once I work with someone I tend to work with them again um, so they bring me on and then you have pre-production meetings right and um, there's a few different processes like when I'm very involved in pre-production which I love like there's a director I work with she'll bring me on really early and she'll bring me on in the uh, mode where she's still figuring out exactly what the narrative is and she'll, she'll give me a mood board, she'll give me a treatment, which is like a summary of what she's trying to make. Um, if it's something with words, she'll give me the script, obviously. So they'll give me all of that research that they've done, right? Um, and what I start doing is, based on sort of what they're giving me, I'll start pulling my own research. It, uh, from images and what I'm thinking of and so I'll start pulling out my own mood boards based on what they've shown me of what I'm thinking for example um well for example uh recently this project I did they were like oh we're we're thinking about like Chernobyl right <laughs> like post-apocalyptic world so like then I'll start I have a book of abandoned places so I'll like pull I'll look at my book of abandoned places and start pulling images that like speak to me where I'm like oh are we trying to like make a comment about like nature has reclaimed the space or are we talking about like here's like the demise of like humankind and here are artifacts of humankind so like based on what they're giving me I'll start pulling those kinds of research research where those images talk to one concept or another and I'll sort of like put together my own mood board to, to shoot back to them being like here's what I'm thinking based on what you've told me like does this resonate am I like, I don't, I'm not a designer who is like, this is my vision, like, you guys should do what I think because it, I want it to look this way. Like, that's not the kind of designer I am. I'll, like, dramaturgically, I'll be like, is this what you're trying to go for? Like, are we trying to talk about, like, human ruins? Or are we trying to talk about, like, the power of nature over humanity? Or are we trying to, like, you know, like, what are the themes, right? And how do we express that visually? So I will pull some things that I'm responding to them and they'll either come back to me being like, I like this, I don't like this. You know what I mean? And so you start refining um, in this dialogue of mood boards and if like I sometimes I'll draw to like storyboard certain ideas or like do concept art for certain things depending on the person, um, depending on my time and the budget too. Um, 
I'm not like the most amazing storyboarder slash concept artist. Like I have friends who I'm like, if this project had budget, I would hire them to do it. But I can do it in a pinch, you know. Like, but for me, it's like easy to just pull images. Like, the internet is a thing that exists. I have a library of reference books that's a whole room, so you can I can pull images and put together a very rough storyboard or concept board, mood board based on that, right? Um, so I'll usually send that, and then we'll have meetings about like this works, this doesn't work, we want this, we don't want this. Etc. to refine the vision. Um, and then depending again on the project and the budget, then I'll start sourcing things, things I need to make, things I need to source to like dress a place or like props that need to get made. Like whenever anyone gives me treatment, I automatically in my brain, or even when I'm reading like a play, even or something that even for something I'm not hired on, I will automatically keep a running list of like this is set dressing that needs to get source. This is like props that need to get sourced. Like I'll keep a running list of in my brain of objects and like things that need to get like purchased or made or sourced for the project. So you're synthesizing essentially. You're talking with the artistic director, I guess. No, or like, the, the or, team. Um, you like they're just called the director. The, the director, who, um, like whomever. The, like the person who's like making the thing, like the top dog. And so that you're, so you're talking with the top dog, and they yeah. say, okay, this is our concept. This is and you're basically taking what they're telling you and translating it. And to you're visual. translating it into visual medium. You send it back to them. They say, yes, yes, no, yes, yes, maybe yeah. more of this. And then after that, you say, okay, well, if they like this, then I have to figure out how to make a rusty yeah. barrel that looks like it's been yeah. blown up. So can you talk about, like, some of the hands-on stuff that you've done? Now that you've gotten the go-ahead for a concept, like, what is what are some of the things you've had to make? Well, here's the thing. It's, like, um, because you never know what you have to make. <laughs> You never know what you have to, like, learn how to make, right? So, like, um, and one of my projects, we were talking about this, like, surreal dinner party. And I, I was all like, what do you think about Aspic? And she's like, oh, my God, Aspic is amazing. And I was like, cool, cool. And then I had to be all like, how the hell do you make, like, Aspic or Jello molds? And so I had to, like, Google all about, like, how you put, how you suspend objects in Jello, like, how... You know, you semi, you semi let it set, then you put the stuff in, and then, but like, how do you get clarity without like streaking? And like, these are things where you're like, I never thought I would have to think about gelatin this much. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're doing like two weeks of testing in your kitchen, everything sticky, of gelatin, putting stuff in gelatin, making test molds. And like, that was the most, one of the most stressful shoots I've ever been on because. For the final molds, if anyone knows anything about gelatin molds, you have to like put it in hot water a little bit for it to release and to have it like smooth, beautiful surface. If you leave it in for too long, you melt your gelatin and then you fuck up your mold. Oops, sorry, I don't it's know. Okay, it's okay, I'll bleep it out. Yeah. It's fine. Um, if you don't put it enough, it'll stick and it'll rip your mold. So, and the thing is, for the final molds, and I had backups, but like, for the final molds and like some of the show pieces, I didn't have backups because it would have been too expensive and too time consuming to make more than one. I was on set unmolding them for the scene, hoping that it didn't melt under the lights, hoping that they didn't rip, hoping that they didn't like implode. It's kind of like being a parent. But like I'm on set <laughs> unmolding all these things and people were trying to talk to me. I'm like, don't talk to me while I'm fucking unmolding the jello molds. Like I cannot do this stress right now. Also, um, jello molds, here's a fun tip if you ever want to do a jello mold. Also make sure to always put a layer of water on whatever plate you're unmolding it on. Because if you don't put um, a, a layer of water on your plate, if you unmold it onto a dry plate, that's where it's at. Where it's, you can't move it without ripping it. 
So if you put water, you can slide it a little bit. So if it's off center, you can center it. Mm. But if it's if you don't do that, then you will mess stick. up your mold. It will stick and oh you, it's God. stuck and it's off center and it will probably look awful on camera. So like these are all things that you're like, I didn't know anything about Jello molds or anything about this, and all of a sudden you're like, I have to learn how to make like float chest pieces in a Jello mold that has like an ombre effect. And I have to make sure that like it stays together and doesn't melt and doesn't rip on set to be used. The more indie or the lower budget stuff you work on, the more you responsibility you actually have to take on because you have to make it all yourself. And so like, for example, I'm talking to this director again who has this concept for a certain movie. And um, there's this, this film called The Love Witch where the director like does a lot of this like handmade stuff on her own and she's like yeah like that person like learned how to hook a rug that with a specific like design and she made over six months and I was like wait so you like you're you're kind of giving me the hint that like for this horror movie you want to make you're gonna want me to learn how to hook a rug with like uh, runes on it and she's like Maybe. And I'm like, okay, so that's like what I have to do where I'm like, I've never hooked a rug in my life. And all of a sudden, if my director wants me to do this, I will probably be like, I guess I have to learn how to hook a rug now. You know what I mean? Which is, <gasps> dare I say it, a craft? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, So the thing about crafting technique, when, when you work as an art director on this level, again, I really want to work on a bigger budget level where I could just like hire this out. Like, for example, I'm so mad whenever I have to do like a ton of graphic design for things where all of a sudden I have to like make all these signs or all these brochures and I'm just like, you know, like in the, in the movie studios people or anything with a budget, you just hire a graphic designer to be like, can yeah. you please design this in this 60s font so that like I can make all the pamphlets look like we're in the 60s. But like when you're on a budget a low budget thing where you're like it's just basically me being an art department maybe I get like one or two interns like on the shoot. One or two PAs on the shoot. <laughs> you're just like I have to like figure out how to be a graphic designer. I have to figure out how to be a rug, rug hooker. I have to figure out how to be a food stylist. I have to figure out how to like you have to figure out how to do everything so that it looks acceptable enough. Like I'm not saying I'm an expert on any of these things, but it's more like you're a multi crafter. Well, they basically what it is. like I want this, and you're like I have to deliver. Like you that's what like it. design or this is about. Like you want to have deliverables. And so you've gone from a place of being like. N not a good studio artist your words and then you're working in a in a, an art gallery where you're like I want to be the artist and so now you're in a place where you're doing art direction but at the same time you also have to deliver very tangible objects for a larger piece but all of those things require different skills yeah I should also mention that we are uh, doing this on location at Elborn in Greenpoint for Tapas Tuesday. Shout out to Elborn for think, uh, letting us buy food and drinks for them. Uh, wait a minute. Um, and we're two vermouths in. Yes, this is great. This is when we get our best stuff. Can we stay for one more round? Sure. We'll have another round. Everyone else is gone, but we'll go yeah. stay for another round. Are you an artist? Because we're doing a podcast about arting. I'm never going to listen to this. As a musician, um, do you feel there are sort of 
comparable levels of like art and design and craft based on whether you are being a solo artist, whether you're being in an ensemble musician, whether you're being uh, an accompanist, uh, whether you're being a, a composer, whether you're being a music director, like what are the different levels, or not levels because that sounds hierarchical, but what are the different categorizations of musician that you can be that you kind of think would relate to these ideas of art, design, and craft? What a great question. I would echo your answer from earlier and say that it really comes back to context. Context is so important. And we talked about this in Rachel's podcast. Uh, Rachel was our, our balloon artist, our twisting sister from Another Mystery. You should listen to that episode if you haven't. Um, but I've listened to it. <laughs> um, it's the idea that, like, just because you're creating art with a certain medium or in a certain context, it doesn't necessarily jeopardize your artistry or your craftsmanship. So whether I am performing a, a show, like a solo show, or whether I'm performing in an ensemble, it's expected that my musicianship is the same. And I think what you have to look at is that you have different skills. And it's... Um, so if I'm going to play, even if, if you're just looking at it as being a solo performer, you're, there are different avenues. I can perform solo classical rep, like what I had to do in college. I had a, a whole recital, and I had to perform that repertoire. And, of course, you can add your own spin, but it has to be within a certain context. Like with if you're going to play, for, play Mozart, you're not really supposed to use a lot of sustain pedal or really any because I don't think it had really been invented yeah, yet. wasn't it written all on um, the pianoforte, uh, pianoforte which didn't have the actual sustain pedal yeah, of a piano. Or like harpsichord even. Exactly. Right? So like if I'm performing classical rap, it there are certain rules. Like if I'm playing um, something like Baroque or, or classical, if I'm playing Mozart, right, for instance, versus playing Beethoven or Debussy, which is romantic and impressionistic, even the hand shapes, like Debussy, you can have like more like elongated hand shapes because it's very watery, it's very flowy, it's not very precise. Um, so I can add my own spin, but it's within a certain concept, uh, context. So would you say that's kind of like design? I would say that is more akin to being a ballet artist because... You can, if you're going to perform a Balanchine ballet, you're going to be yourself. You're going to perform the ballet in the in the way that is natural for your body, but there are certain stylistic things that you have to prescribe to. So um, another thing that's often talked about is this concept of the performing arts versus the creative arts. So and so, like, yes. what kind of artist that makes you? Do you know what I mean? It's because um, for the performing arts, you're often interpreting someone else's creative art so the composer is doing a creative art and you as a pianist is doing a performative art right like yeah I think that that's a great that's a great way of thinking about it I think it's a, a sliding scale if you think of performing arts on one end and then creative arts on the other I think that it can be on a fluctuating scale. I think it always has to be on a fluctuating scale for instance if I am sticking with the piano playing avenue let's say that I'm, instead of performing classical rap, let's say I'm performing like a singer-songwriter type thing of, of songs that I have made, but I'm performing them. I obviously have a lot more freedom because I wrote the damn song, so I can perform them how I want to. I think in a, in a certain sense, like if you're music directing, 
you can make music direction choices, but in that hierarchy, the artistic director essentially is the overall, right? It's like artistic director, choreographer, music director, and so if they're like, well, this dance needs to be faster, you just have to go faster because that's so, just what it has to be. I think that's what I feel about, like, when you when you talk about being a music director, I feel that's akin to what I talk about being a designer, where you obviously have your point of view and you have things you want to, like, accomplish within this artwork, but, like, at the end of the day, it's, like, not your artistic vision. Right. Like, if someone else is like, but I want it to be like this, and you're like, well, okay, let me figure out how to make it be like that. Like, you're not the end-all be-all. Which is so saying. interesting, because when you start talking about, like, musical theater, like, you have, people can get a Tony for best direction, they can get a Tony for best choreography, because they're creating something. Although, when you think about it, like, if you're directing a, a film, of course, you're, you're making choices, but you're not changing the script. You might make some, I mean, I guess you can make cuts. I, I don't know, that's kind of a gray area. But it depends also there are like more auteur directors versus like less auteur directors you know like there's different levels of directorship as well but you don't there's not a tony category for best music direction and i can tell you that there have been a lot of times when i have straight up in like what you were talking about earlier joyce about when you're working in a lower tier like lower budget <laughs> where i live right same same where we where we both live it's like you're like, I've never lived in a world where I've had a music supervisor. I've never had that. I have been the music supervisor, the accompanist, the music director, the, the vocal coach. I've been all of those. So it's like how I'm basically, like in, in big movies where you're like, there's an art department of 100 people and you're in charge of them. So on indie films, you're basically like, it's an art department of me and one PA. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I'm lucky, I get a if PA. If you're lucky. Otherwise, it's just an art department of one person. Yeah, so, I've yeah. done, I've been in music department of one person and then I hire a band or maybe I don't have a band maybe it's just me I've done that too and that's terrifying or even worse when it's like oh we're going to use student musicians but don't like, you find Wait. it's like terrifying but also at the same time it's very liberating because yeah. you have so much like latitude like that's what I love about working on indie things where it's like I have zero budget but I also like um I don't have to answer to very many people and I don't have to wrangle very many people I can exactly. basically do whatever I want it's and just it, a lot of work <laughs> it's a lot of work but at the same time if the work doesn't get done, it's your fault. And if it does, you get all the glory. And it's kind of, it's a double-edged sword. There is not a lot of glory in these fields. There's, there's <laughs> you're not. like one person be like, good job. And you're like, thank you. And that's all the glory you get. Because no. no one, like everyone I know is all like, what art direction? Or like, why does it even matter what that background looks like? Or like, they don't, they don't realize like how much it affects your mood and your experience of a narrative. Um, a lot of people only notice it when it's bad. And when it's oh, good, sure. they're never like, that was so good. They're just like, oh, that was bad. But, And I'm the same way about certain things that I don't, like, I'm not inve as invested in. Like, lighting design, I'm all like, I can only tell when it's bad. And if it's good, I'm a little bit like, oh, I guess lighting design was a thing that was there. But um, because I'm not that interested in it, I don't have the eye for it. But for production design, like, I will always notice, like, that teacup was wrong. That wallpaper pissed me off. I don't think that character would own that lamp. Like, I seriously watched the movie, and I was so mad about a lamp for, like, the whole rest of the movie. She would not have had that lamp. Yeah. It really was a situation where I was like, I don't think that character would have owned that lamp. There's no backstory where I could imagine where she would have that lamp. Like, I couldn't even imagine where it's like, she had a boyfriend that brought that lamp when they lived together. And then they like, and I was trying to think of all these scenarios where I'm like, that she would have that lamp. And I literally could land on no scenario where that person would have that lamp in their apartment. And I was like, angry about it.
It's that time again. That's right. The super sexy sponsor shout out. Our newest monthly sponsor at the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast is Carrie Davis. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining our monthly sponsor program. You and Katri are total rock stars. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can click the link in the description or go to anchor.fm slash socially distant craft club slash support. So now let's get back to the good stuff. I think some of the most interesting music that I've heard creatively in the last decade has been musicians that are like in the indie scene that they're playing in shows out in Bushwick and Queens and you know whatever and they're doing things with loop pedals and they're like building these songs in front of you with like you know they're they're singing and they're playing the flute and they're hitting a a, a break drum or something oh and i love the looped it's kind really of, like cool. even those people in the subway that do like looped violin or looped cello i'm like <gasps> i always like take their information because i'm like i would hire you to play at my like party or whatever because it's like it's amazing well it, it because it's like it's not just a, a finished product it's not just like one yeah. thing that you get to hear oh i love this song it, oh totally yeah. and like you get to actually see a bit of their process yeah. and I and that's kind of an interesting take on it's almost like a solo improvisation the process is the product yeah. which is kind of rare it's like yeah. w- with knitting a lot of people are like are you a process knitter or a product knitter like do you do it because you enjoy making the thing or do you like to have the thing when it's finished I'm not a knitter at all no she's not <laughs> I've been trying she's not but it's like with art, I feel like a lot of people, and actually full circle, there's a ballet instructor uh, named Cindy Bernier, and she's amazing, love her, but she's also a really incredible um, artist, and she's so soft-spoken and gentle, but she makes these huge, like, abstract paintings. And I told her, I'm like, you need to get an Instagram, because people would like this, and she was like, no, nobody wants to see these. And she's, like, kind of taken off, but right. she makes these big things, and she just, like... It's the process for her of making the art. I mean, what do you think about process versus product? So the thing about process versus product, uh, because I look at things a lot through a 60s, 70s conceptual art lens, um, I actually am super interested in process because that's something that they were very interested in, right? Like where they were like, the object itself doesn't matter. So they looked a lot at process. They looked a lot at divorcing like the artists from the final product like solo it was just like my art is here's a list of instructions it's all in the process you make it it doesn't matter what it looks like in the end and what that making is like for me it's like the idea can i pause real quick yeah so if his art was a set of instructions yeah could you then do the same thing for any art form, whether it was like a knitting pattern or a paint by numbers or like? Yeah, do, like that it, it took that idea essentially. I think it actually took it in the other from that idea. Yeah. From the craft idea or like from the non-fine arts world, and he took it and made it like conceptual art and fine art. But basically, there was this idea that like the end product doesn't matter. It is about the idea and about the process. So, there, like, there's another kind of art where it's, like, let's just do a repetitive process and it doesn't matter what it looks like at the end, right? Like, you're just, like, I'm going to set a rule where I'm going to set a thousand lines that are parallel to each other that then turn perpendicular, right? And you just make it, and that's not, like, I want it to look like a person with a smile on their face. Like, it's just, like, you're doing the process in a very mechanical fashion. That was something that was very, um, 
that was explored a lot within the conceptual art movement. Um, and also conceptual art tied a lot with dance and music, like John Cage, experimental music. Um, you know, his partner was Merce Cunningham, who's a dancer, and their friend was Robert Rauschenberg, who's an artist. And I always like to look at this trifecta because it's this like combination of dance, music, and art, and how their process worked. And it was a lot about chance, where they were like, we don't want it to look like something, we just want to be like, let's leave it up to chance, and however it comes together, it comes together, right? That's how I cook. So, I mean, that's how I live my life. <laughs> I don't know how I feel. There's, you have to look at the artist's intention, and then you also have to look at, we keep com coming back to this uh, word tonight, context, context, yeah. context. If you're going to look at, like, pop music and the recording industry in the last hundred years, if you go way back to, like, 1910, 1920, the earliest recording is, like, Tin Pan Alley, and you listen to, like, hot jazz records and all that, which I know you love. Oh, you do? Okay, but no, great. go on, go on. So, like, the, the sound is so tinny, right? And it's, it takes you to a certain place. The sound quality is obviously not great because they're, like, recording on wax cylinders and stuff. But what you don't realize is, like, they were making specific artistic choices because of how it was going to be recorded. Like, you have guitar players playing on, playing certain patterns or, or more, actually, more commonly, it would be banjos because the sound would cut through more. Uh, trumpets were more strident. Singers were more strident because they were... It, it was going to leave a better imprint and have a better recording quality because the sound waves were picked up better on the medium. And it's not like a crazy concept because even if you go back to the 80s, the 70s and 80s with hair metal... All of a sudden, you have all these guys that are singing in the stratosphere, and their their tone, their vocal tone, is just very nasally, very screechy. And it's because you've got all these instruments that are now mic'd to the nth degree. Everybody's got a mic. The drummer has a mic, for God's sake. The bass player has a mic. You know, everybody's got a mic. And the electric guitar, you've got seven electric guitars in this band. So you've got this guy who's singing in a microphone, screaming in a, into a microphone. I wanted to ask you what advice you might have for somebody that's starting something brand new. That's like, and I want to specifically like whether it's art with a capital A or a lowercase a, any kind of artistic expression, whether it's visual or musical or um, kinesthetic or whatever. Like you're somebody who, I mean, obviously I, I met you through dance. I played um, classes at a ballet um, school and you took classes there and we lived in the same neighborhood and so we started talking we became amazing friends because you're amazing what advice would you give for somebody who is starting something brand new um I would say go for it dream big and don't be worried when you mess up because you will mess up in fact it's inevitable and if you let that stop you, it will really stop you. You know what I mean? And I, I've let that stop me in the past because I'm a perfectionist and I hate ugliness. I'm like sort of a connoisseur of formal aesthetic beauty. So when you see something that's like super ugly, I'm just like, I don't want to continue. But if you don't work through that, you'll never get to the aesthetic formal beauty that you want. It doesn't happen in one step. You have to go through some ugliness. 
my dream big thing. I was literally talking to my drafting professor today and she was like, what theater are you imagining this set that you're, <laughs> you're drawing? And I'm like, well, I'm imagining it for the Met because if I can't design for the Met in my brain, where can I design for the Met? Because it's not gonna happen in real life. So I might as well design it in my brain. Why not? Dream big. Like if, if, if there's a situation where there's no stakes and there's nothing like to risk, like why not think as big as you can design for the Met? Do eight pirouettes in your brain, even if you only do like two in real life, you know? <laughs> two on a good day. Um, but like, if, if you envision it, if you imagine it bigger than what your limitations are, then you can kind of land closer to that. Hmm. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. You've been listening to the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. My name's Cody, and our special guest today was Joyce Lai. If you have a question for Joyce, or for me for that matter, send a little voice message to sociallydistantcraftclub at gmail.com. I know I'm getting in the holiday spirit, so next week my guest is going to be Eric Trainer, who is a playwright, a composer, songwriter, all-around fun guy, and we're going to be talking about Christmas songs, especially the terrible ones. So you don't want to miss that. Be sure to subscribe to the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. And until next time, let's make something together. <laughs>